Our next speaker is Dr. Lori Erickson. She is Associate Professor of Pathology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She did anatomic and clinical pathology residency and a fellowship in surgical pathology at the Mayo Clinic and a fellowship in dermatopathology in the Harvard Dermatopathology Fellowship Program. Dr. Erickson is the Vice Chair for Education, is on the Executive Committee, and is head of the Dermatopathology Working Group in Pathology at the Mayo Clinic. She serves as a melanoma pathologist for the Melanoma Study Group and Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. She's also the Pathology Chair of the North Central Cancer Treatment Group, sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Erickson is a senior associate editor of the journal Human Pathology and serves on editorial boards of a number of journals in the fields of pathology and medicine. Please welcome Dr. Lori Erickson. Thanks so much uh, for the introduction. I'm very happy to be here to talk today on melanoma. Melanoma, it seems anymore, is basically my life. What I do at the Mayo Clinic is really see very little of our own uh, internal material, only if there's a problem with it or some particularly difficult situation. What I do is I read all day, every day, consultation cases, and the majority of which seem to be melanocytic. Um, it's a very interesting job, but some days I tell you it gets rather, rather painful. Uh, because some of the cases, I think that there's, it turns out to be about no answer. But we have something kind of interesting now with our new staging system. We're all happy to have it. I'm already looking forward to the next one because I think this could, we could even do much better. The staging in melanoma really kind of lags behind compared to staging of other cancers. And I think it reflects maybe the literature maybe isn't as robust in melanoma than in other tumors. Um, here's our new 7th edition staging manual, just to let you know a couple things. This is generally what we go by. This came out last winter in Journal of Clinical Oncology, and the CAP, or College of American Pathologists, came up with a, a couple publications also. This is kind of problematic because these aren't actually all the same. And I'll point out where they differ. What we do is generally stick with the staging manual. But if you get some kind of goofy things that come up in reports or conversations, you might see where they're coming from. We'll start with an example. This is a 64-year-old lady with a lesion on her scalp. It's a very invasive tumor down into the subcutaneous tissue. Here you can see a lot of cytomorphology that's atypical, prominent nucleoli, and we've got mitotic activity in the lesion. It's clearly malignant. The tumor grows along the junction this way. So that helps us to know this is a melanoma rather than some other type of cancer. So this is our standard report. But it is a bit intimidating. I think you get this and you just, you know, oh, see people's shoulders just fall down. Now what am I supposed to do with this? And it, all of this is not necessary for the staging. We'll go through all of this, though, because that all of these are things that have been shown uh, to have statistical significance uh, in, in multiple uh, areas of the literature. And we'll go through these so that you know what they are. So if these are particular things that you want on your reports or that you get on your reports and the patients ask you something, that you won't have any doubt that you can answer what they ask. This is actually what you need for the staging. This is it. You don't need all that other stuff for the staging. This really is it. Um, but when 
I read out the cases, they go all over the country and all over the world. So in doing that, I put in everything because I want to be sure that the bases are covered. And every institution and every dermatologist, it seems, has a little bit different take on, on how they uh, like to have their report. So I put in everything. You notice that the, even the type of melanoma is not in the staging. That's more descriptive. It really probably doesn't matter too much with the exception of desmoplastic melanoma. We'll start here, the, the measured or the Breslow depth of invasion. This is the most important prognostic factor in the primary cutaneous melanoma. We all know that. This is how it was in the last edition. We all know this well. We still have the same cutoffs, one, two, and four millimeters. The thing about these cutoffs, though, is that these are not some magical cutoffs like this. And I think people get that idea. Oh, gosh, it's a 0.98 millimeter melanoma, so it's like this, rather than that cutoff at one, you know, something like that. And, and that's just not the case. It's a continuous variable. These are just the best fit. And these remain the same. To measure the Breslow depth or the thickness, you measure from the top of the granular layer to the deepest tumor cell. Now, if the tumor is ulcerated, you measure from the highest viable tumor cell to the deepest melanoma cell. And sometimes when patients, they come to Mayo Clinic to be treated for advanced stage melanoma, and we actually have the largest number of patients on advanced stage trials anywhere in the country, probably the world. So we end up reviewing an awful lot of stuff that comes through again. And what some people will do, and I don't know where they get this idea, but if a tumor is ulcerated, they'll give the measure of the tumor, and then they'll kind of extrapolate. And I think I'm going to add on that much more to make up for that regression, because it really would have been taller, or I'm sorry, for that ulceration. So it really would have been thicker. It really would have. So I think it really would have been here. That's absolutely wrong. Don't do that. And if you get a report back where people try to extrapolate, you don't use that information. That's not right. Now, for the adventitia and the adnexal structures, this is the base of the melanoma. So we'd start way up in the granular layer, measure down here to this cell. What would we do with this? Would we measure this? Anybody? No. We're not going to measure this because it's going around the adnexa. This is the adnexal structure here. We don't measure that unless there's, except for one circumstance. If we don't have any melanoma that's invading down from the surface, you have nothing that's invading down, but you have prominent involvement of the adnexal structures. So you basically have everything else that looks like an in situ melanoma. The only place that you find any invasive tumors if it's invading off an adnexal structure, then you might get a kind of an odd report back to give the, the distance horizontal from the inner part of the adnexal structure out. This is done by convention. You think there's good literature for this? No. But this is dermatopathology. This is not hematopathology or neuropathology. So it is lacking. But that's by convention. I'll go through a few miscellaneous circumstances. TIS, if you want to put a T on it. IS for melanoma in situ. We usually don't. TX, primary tumor can't be assessed. Presentation's indeterminate, or maybe they curatized it out terribly, and there's no way you can have any idea how deep it is. T0, no evidence of a primary tumor, and I'll show you some situations of this later so you know how to put these together and stage them. What if you do three biopsies and you get back two melanomas? Well, how do you stage a patient? It's going to be on the worst. If a tumor is transected at the base, and the, so you get a biopsy, say you weren't expecting melanoma. 
You shaved it, you get a biopsy, not expecting melanoma, it's transected at the base. Oh my gosh, no idea. You go to re-excise it and you get residual tumor. You take the deepest of those measures, whether it was the first shave or whatever that you did, or the re-excision, you take the deepest. You do not add them together. And you hear people say, well, in those circumstances, I do this. It's like, oh gosh. No, that's not how it's done. It's very clear as to how it's going to be done. There's no mathematics involved, none. There's no addition, nothing in melanoma reports. So if you get something like that, that's wrong. You just use the deepest one from one or the other. You do not add them together, ever. Tumor ulceration, it's defined full thickness epidermal defect, including absence of stratum corneum and basement membrane evidence of reactive changes and changes in the surrounding epidermis. In the absence of trauma or recent surgical procedure, this is the same as it was last time, no changes in this. When you have a re-excision specimen, oftentimes you'll have some ulceration. And we'll, I'll put in something to the effect of the, the epidermis is focally ulcerated, however, there was previous biopsy at the site, so this likely is from the pre prior biopsy and not from uh, tumoral ulceration or in processing, some of the epidermis could literally fall off. And just, we just make that as a notation, that doesn't count. And as you know, this is the same as the last system, where you have the melanoma from the T stage, and it's TA, uh, 1A without ulceration, B with ulceration, the same for two, three, and four. So that moves it up, that has not changed. The, the ulcerated melanomas have the same survival as non-ulcerated of the next greatest thickness category. So to look at this more simple, just show a case, okay? A 1.52 millimeter thick ulcerated melanoma. Okay, 1.2 millimeters, so that gets us to a T2 ulcerated B melanoma right there. 10-year survival, 67%. So that's the same survival as the next highest category, so that would be of, of uh, T3A. So see how those are so similar? That's why you don't do any of that crazy adding. You don't do it, you flat don't do it, it's clear in the books you don't do it, in the staging you don't. It's taken care of by this. Mitotic rate, this is new to the seventh edition of AJCC staging. It's not new to those who've been working in melanoma. It's been, we've been reporting this since, gosh, probably since I was in elementary school it's been reported, if not beforehand. It's been reported forever. Um, we've known about it in studies after studies forever, but this is the first time that they actually looked by multifactorial analysis at the subset of cases that they used to make up the staging. First time they looked at the mitotic activity. They looked at over 10,000 cases of clinically localized melanomas and found mitotic rate to be the second most powerful predictor of survival after tumor thickness. And the most significant correlation with survival was at a threshold of at least one. Uh, and this is important as to how these are reported. It's significant in thick and thin melanomas, but it's only used in the classification of T1 melanomas. Uh, some also do find it to be a significant predictor of lymph node metastasis in patients with melanoma. So this is something that you might take into account when you're considering sentinel lymph node biopsy in a tumor that's not a millimeter thick. This has been known forever. This is a few of the more recent articles, but it's been known uh, for decades, the importance of mitotic rate. 
Uh, this is uh, from Ray Barnhill, 650 consecutive invasive melanomas from the Connecticut Tumor Registry. By multivariate analysis, tumor thickness and mitotic activity were independent prognostic factors. And it's only when they took mitotic activity out then did ulceration become significant independently. And they concluded mitotic rate more important prognostic factor than ulceration. This isn't news in the literature. This has been known, like I said, forever. It's just now it finally showed up. Now I show this study, this is from the Sydney Melanoma Unit, um, because of the importance, again, I'm getting to how you actually write out uh, the melanomas. And when you get a report about mitotic activity, what you're really gonna look for, and if you don't have, you better call the pathologist. Mitotic rate of zero, they found, is better survival than one. Zero itself is better than one. One and two doesn't really make a difference. Two to three doesn't really make a difference. Three to four doesn't really make a difference. Those single upgrades like that don't make a difference. But the zero to the one, that single integer change is a significant difference. It's very important of that to know if it's zero or if it's one. Counting them, again, this comes across almost in, when you read the, the report or the, the staging uh, that this is something new, the hotspot method. Uh, we've done this for 25 years. Uh, you find the area in the dermis with the highest concentration of mitoses. You focus on that, then you move to one millimeter squared, which is about four high power fields, and you count the mitotic activity. If the invasive component is less than a millimeter in area, then the simple presence or absence of a mitosis can be designated as at least one mitogenic or zero. Rates should be reported as one or zero or however many that you have per millimeter squared. It should not be less than one per millimeter squared. It should not be. This comes right out of the staging. Uh, for most tumor registries, a designation less than one per millimeter squared being that you figure it would equal zero, uh, has been customarily used in the past. This practice may be continued for historical data. For the future, we urge pathologists to list zero or one or more. And this practice should also be demanded by clinicians. But what I think is kind of frustrating when these come out, and this was brought up in Vienna before it came out in the, in the book form, um, that it's frustrating. Still in the tables when they list it, they list it as less than one in the staging. So put in a big paragraph about it, but then you still kind of muck it up when you put it in the tables. So it is a bit of a frustration. Uh, we were meeting in Sydney at the International uh, Melanoma Pathology Study Group last uh, weekend. And we went through this uh, uh, quite a lot. We really, really urge that it's zero or one, not less than one. So here, if we, in this, we go to the hotspot method. We look for an area with the most mitotic activity. We start there, counting the mitotic figures. Mitotic figures are only counted in the dermis, only in the dermis. And then you move out to a millimeter squared. Uh, the, and this is where it's new. This is what's new. We are used to having ulceration that gets us to B, but we have mitotic activity now. One mite is all you have. If more, fine, doesn't matter, but you have to have one mite and it'll still get you to B. You have ulceration or mitotic activity. We'll get you there. And here's the stage, some of the staging, and it shows, like on that case that we had, the, the um, 2B, the same survival as the 3A. So it moves you up. 
The anatomic level or the Clark level, people will say it's no longer in the staging. That's not quite true. It's a tertiary factor in the staging. Pathologists are still going to leave it in the reports because you're used to seeing it. Um, so it'll still be left in. It, but in the rare circumstance where the mitotic rate cannot be accurately determined, a level of invasion of either four or five, as defined by Clark, can be used to categorize patients into T1B classification. Well, you figure, how on earth can you not figure out what the mitotic rate is? Well, in addition to it's fun to be here, if I were at home right now, we're getting five to 10 inches of snow in Minnesota today. So when it's that cold out that, and you have a sample that maybe freezes and transports, something like that, you really can't see the mitotic activity. It really becomes so terribly smudged and difficult to read that you wouldn't be able to. And it's in that setting where we would use the Clark level. This was in the last staging, and it's out for now, except for the, as a tertiary factor in the current staging. Now, radial uh, and vertical growth phase Again, these are not in the staging, but they're still used. Uh, some large uh, academic medical centers actually decide whether or not they're going to do sentinel lymph node on thin melanomas, those less than a millimeter, uh, if the tumor has a vertical growth phase. So it's an important thing to keep in mind, whether or not you're using at your institution now, if you move around, wherever you end up, uh, they may be using this critically. So it's important to know what these are, and this isn't difficult at all. It's not difficult. Start with the most quick and dirty, all melanomas, except nodular, have a radial growth phase. So there you go. That's pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. The, the things to think about with it, though, is that it's the growth of the melanoma within the epidermis and along the junction. And radial growth phase tumors can be invasive tumors. They can invade into the papillary dermis and still be radial growth phase only tumors. Some people, I don't know where the idea came from, but there's an idea that well, if it's an in situ, that's radial growth phase, or if it extends out, you know, along the junction, well, that's the radio, that's radial growth phase. But anything invasive, that's vertical growth phase. That's not true. Radial growth phase can be invasive. If it's radial growth phase only tumor, can be invasive. But it has to be only Clark level two, not Clark level three or more, only Clark level two. You can't have any dermal mitotic activity, not even one. We've learned that from David Elder. And the third is it can't be tumorigenic. You can't have nests in the dermis that are big and expansile, bigger than those in the overlying epidermis. That's the quick and dirty about those tumors, and we'll show why that is important. Here's a radial growth phase melanoma. Here it is growing along the junction. Here's some pagetoid spread, and it's invasive right here. But still, it's in the papillary dermis. These nests aren't bigger than those in the overlying epidermis, and there's no dermal mitotic activity. So this is an invasive melanoma. Radial growth phase is present. Vertical growth phase is absent. Vertical growth phase characteristics are one or more expansile dermal nodules. So basically, it's the same thing we said that the radial couldn't have. One or more expansile nodules in the dermis, making it tumorigenic, nodules in the dermis bigger than the overlying epidermis, that, or one mitotic figure, even one will count, or Clark level three. And does anybody know how they came up with the Clark level? Kind of magic drew it out. He came up with it with the idea it's an anatomic level. 
And the Clark Level 3, why, you know, why is that so important? It's because when it gets to Clark Level 3, the tumor reaches the superficial vascular plexus. And once it does that, the idea is then it has metastatic potential. This is all theory, but I think it's a nice way of, of talking about it, and the studies do seem to support it. This is actually a photo from um, Martin Mim, but it shows very well the, this is the tumor, it's ulcerated, there's vertical growth phase to the tumor. Here's radial growth phase of the tumor going out. And this is kind of like that. Here we have the tumor, here's the big vertical growth phase of the tumor. This is radial growth phase of the tumor going out. The reason that's so important is that um, there are a number of studies showing that you can have melanomas that are invasive but have an extraordinarily unlikely chance of metastasizing. Extraordinarily unlikely. We never say never or absolute, but extremely unlikely. This is a study by David Elder, 211 invasive melanomas. 65 of those invasive melanomas were radial growth phase only, five-year survival 100%. 146 vertical growth phase, five-year survival 63%. Another study, 161 patients, invasive, pure radial growth phase melanomas, no vertical growth phase, followed for 13.7 years, no metastases. Now, the importance of vertical growth phase in regard to sentinel node, and there are some centers that are using this to decide whether or not they're doing it. 77 patients with thin melanomas underwent sentinel node biopsy. Six had positive sentinel nodes. The factors positively correlating with metastases vertical growth phase, ulceration, and high mitotic rate. The overwhelming majority of melanomas, including invasive melanomas, that lack vertical growth phase are not associated with metastases. But, like I said, nothing's 100%. Melanomas without an identified vertical growth phase have metastasized, so it's not an absolute. Also, the majority of melanomas with a vertical growth phase aren't associated with metastases. I mean, the majority of melanomas don't metastasize. And regression appears to be quite important in patients with a radial growth phase only melanoma that's associated with metastasis. This is uh, an example of regression. Regression, um, I use the definition for which it shows statistical significance. The literature is really split. Some of the literature says regression has statistical significance. Other literature doesn't. So I figure, gosh, if I'm going to report it with statistical significance, if I'm going to report it, I better be using the definition for which they've shown it has significance, not just something I decided to make up on my own. So I use the definition uh, by Clark. Area of epidermis, so that's what we have, without tumor, flanked on one or both sides, it's just cut off, melanoma there and there. Uh, by melanoma. The dermis is also free of tumor, usually widened by delicate fibrous tissue, vascularity, and melanophages. Here's the regression in the tumor clinically. Here's the melanoma. This is regression. This is tumoral melanosis. Okay, so we'll say we can think about it in a sense like complete regression, but we often use this terminology. Not, not generally in the primary tumor. This is when the tumor, there's no melanoma cells there, but you just have a big mass of melanophages. Say I had a melanoma on my hand, and then a year later I end up with this brown area in my skin here. And you biopsy that, send that in, and it's just, it looks just like this. There's no melanoma cells there, but you look at that and you figure, well, I wonder what caused that. 
that's tumoral melanosis. It counts the same as a metastasis. Regression is especially important in the thin melanomas. The melanoma in situ that have been reported with, associated with metastases, regression. Uh, case control study, extensive regression in 42% of thin melanomas with metastases and only 5% of matched controls. Uh, in a study of 103 thin melanomas, uh, 30 showed partial regression. Six of the 30 were associated with metastases and death, and all six had greater than 75% regression. 73 without regression were not associated with metastases. So the extensive regression or complete regression is a worse prognosis than just focal regression. Tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Um, this is problematic and it's difficult because I see pathologists kind of make up their own definitions. And again, I think that's very problematic when, when people's response to, well, what's the definition? Well, when I see such and such, then I think it's, that's not a definition. It's what's in the literature, what is evidence-based. Right now we have brisk, non-brisk, and absent. We have three tiers of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. That probably is gonna change into a two-tiered system, but for the moment that's what we have. We know that the presence of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes is a favorable prognostic feature. Importantly, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes reported only in the vertical growth phase of a tumor. And why is that? So if you have a tumor that basically has an extremely minuscule chance of metastasizing, how are you gonna find those tumor infiltrating lymphocytes to be significant? Well, you're not. They haven't been found to be significant in those settings. So sometimes we get reports and it says, uh, malignant melanoma, focal invasion, superficial papillary dermis, 0.1 millimeter, and then we'll have something like radial growth phases present, and you're like, oh gosh. And then you, or vertical growth phase is present, and you'll think, what on earth is going on? And then they'll talk about the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Well, there's no vertical growth phase there, and you don't report tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in a tumor that doesn't have a substantial vertical growth phase for which it'd make any difference. You can report it. It means nothing, but I think it gives the clinicians a bad idea, a, a bad um, uh, information. Oh, it has brisk tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Well, that's a positive sign. It means nothing in that, it means nothing. There's no literature to support that. This is uh, the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in our current system. I drew these myself. I'm quite an artist, I guess. Um, anyway, I appreciate the lack of too much laughter. Here's the epidermis, this orange-brown stuff, that's my tumor. These clear spaces, those are supposedly vessels. These blue circles are are lymphocytes. So lymphocytes are there. You can see them when it's absent, but they're not infiltrating the substance of the tumor. But you do see that there can have a few that spread out from the vessels. And this is a point that's missed by a lot of pathologists, that you can have them if they're coming right out of the vessels. Where do the lymphocytes come from? They don't come from heaven. They come from the vessels. There are always going to be a few around the vessels. So that's why you're gonna see them. Non-brisk, you have a few tumor infiltrating lymphocytes going into the base of the tumor, but you don't have it throughout the entire base of the tumor. That would be brisk, as would across the entire substance of the invasive component, the vertical growth phase of the tumor. And some of these things you think, what do I need to know the, really the details? Well, I think it's good for your own quality control to see that your reports are being read kind of decent and to understand what these things mean too when a patient asks you. So what does it mean that it's non-brisk? And then you'll be like, you could draw out your own little stick picture probably better than mine to really show them what it is. 
This is vascular invasion. For years, it, it wasn't known to be significant, but now um, we do think it is significant in the deep melanomas, and uh, uh, David Elder um, and George Yu has shown that it's also, you can find it more frequently in thinner melanomas if he's immunostaining for it. But I was asking him about it last Monday in Australia, and he said that they're not actually starting to do that yet in the daily, uh, in the daily practice. The next thing is satellites and in-transit metastasis. This is, these are intralymphatic metastases. Now, you're used to in-transit metastases in satellites. And in the literature, historically, satellite, if it's within two centimeters of the original tumor, or some of the literature within five centimeters and however it is, and then in-transit metastases, well, then that would be greater than two or greater than five, no matter what paper that you read. That makes no difference as to which it is. They, they are the same. If it's a satellite or in-transit metastasis, it doesn't matter. They're both intra-lymphatic metastasis with the same prognosis. What's kind of new is that now we're including microscopic satellites. And this is something to keep your eye out for because this is a big deal and it's very tricky to diagnose uh, from a pathology standpoint. Any discontinuous nest of melanocytic cells greater than 0.05 millimeters in diameter, clearly separated by normal dermis, from the main invasive component of the melanoma by at least 0.3 millimeters. It's very important to know this because of that you change the stage up. You move from a melanoma that would be, you, you haven't even looked at a lymph node. You haven't even looked at it, you just have the primary melanoma. From, you move from the primary melanoma all the way up here to N2 to multiple lymph nodes positive, it's the same. So that's a very big thing to look out for. Now I'm gonna show you why it's tricky. You see any microscopic satellites in this melanoma? Anybody? You know it's gonna be a tricky thing. Yeah, no? Not there, okay, we'll do, here's the H&E, is that a microscopic satellite? No, it's just going down to adnexa, but we've seen people try to report that. How about these, this is a melanate to kind of point out, how about that? No. Those are just kind of dripping down from the tumor. They're just irregular growths of the tumor dripping down. And the problem is, is that people are getting a little too, too excited in calling these. To call that, you have the primary melanoma. You're giving a patient based on that multiple positive lymph nodes, the same stage as multiple positive lymph nodes. Be very careful, that's not what it is. So be very leery when you get a report of microscopic satellites. Do you see any here? Yes, where? Yep, way down in the corner, in the bottom uh, side of the screen, right down there. Here, pointed out better and bigger. This is the hair follicle, this thing right here. Next to it, that's a microscopic satellite. You see, that I really believe. But this other stuff just dripping down, we don't count that. We really want to see it definitive that it's a microscopic satellite because it's a world of difference for that patient and for that staging. Okay, now we're gonna shift a bit into sentinel lymph nodes because there have been changes with the progno with the, uh, with, as a prognostic factor with them. Uh, and also there, there have been changes in the staging with the sentinel nodes. Sentinel node biopsy is a highly utilized procedure for diagnosing metastatic melanoma and for staging. Finding tumor in the sentinel node is the most powerful uh, prognostic factor in patients with early melanoma. Usually we can see a fair amount of melanoma and some, here's some staining which isn't needed, but just to show the point. 
So what are the general indications for sentinel lymph node biopsy? And everyone is going to be a little bit different, and there's no perfect answer, but I'll tell you what the general indications are and what some different institutions do. As part of the World Health Organization, we came up with the idea one millimeter. That's the WHO suggestion we came up with. Anyway, one millimeter or more in Breslow depth is a general indication for sentinel lymph node. Every patient's unique. It's always up to the clinician and, to, and the patient as to what they're going to do. But one millimeter or more is a general indication. Well, how about you do them in the thick melanomas, greater than four millimeters? You know, historically, we just did lymphadenectomies in those folks. But yes, we do. We do do them. It's predictive of disease-free, relapse-free, and overall survival. Well, how about in thin melanomas, thin being less than a millimeter melanomas. This is the area which is the most problematic, and at home at the Mayo Clinic, we still are struggling a little bit because the surgeons all have a little bit different idea, and we really can't say that any of them are particularly right or particularly wrong on what they're going to do. But it, it's an interesting thing, and often it ends up with a lot of discussion with the clinician and the patient. In melanomas that are less than zero point, less than or equal to zero, 0.75 millimeters, incidence of sentinel node positivity is about 0 to 2 percent. Positive sentinel nodes, of positive sentinel nodes, those 0.75 to 1 millimeter, about 2 to 7 percent. That's one thing to look at. Other things that we look at at home, at least, mitotic activity, ulceration, vertical growth phase, young age, younger people, of course, have more positive nodes than older. Uh, male sex, and then Clark level. So there's a variety of different things that you can look at that are predictive of uh, sentinel node positivity. Now, when you hear of incidence of sentinel node positivity, oh, well, that institution has such and such incidence of sentinel node positivity. Well, they have such and such. Well, the overall incidence is the incidence of sentinel node positivity, you have to figure, break it down a bit, because obviously those that are thinner are going to have lower rates, and you compare them kind of depth per depth. This is still very rough, because that doesn't take into account mitotic activity, ulceration, any of those other factors. But at least in comparing, you have some idea. Now, the AJCC manual came out recommending uh, sentinel node biopsy be performed as a staging procedure in patients for whom the information will be useful in planning subsequent treatment and follow-up regimens. Specifically for, or at least discussed with, patients with T1B, T2, T3, or T4 melanomas with clinically or radiographically uninvolved regional nodes. Obviously, if you can palpate nodes, you're not going to do a sentinel node. You'll just go right in for dissection. A sentinel node biopsy may be required as an entry criterion for all melanoma patients presenting with clinical stage 1B or 2 disease, including T1A patients with a melanoma equal to 1 millimeter, before entry into clinical trials involving new surgical techniques or adjuvant therapy. So you'll probably see more of this coming down the line. Now, how about desmoplastic melanoma? You know, we said before, you know, we don't even put the, have to have the type of melanoma when we put in for the AJCC staging. We don't even have to. But there's one melanoma where it really does make quite a difference to be certain that you have it, and that's desmoplastic melanoma. Desmoplastic melanomas have an extremely low incidence of sentinel node positivity. And importantly, you must distinguish pure desmoplastic from combined desmoplastic and conventional melanomas because the behavior is different. You know, you get any other melanoma report that says uh, superficial spreading and nodular types. It doesn't harm anybody, but it doesn't really reflect well on you as a pathologist to do that. It doesn't really make a difference to the patient that you did it, but it just doesn't 
It's not good form. This matters. This matters to the patient. This matters to the treatment. This matters a lot to distinguish desmoplastic uh, from other conventional types of melanoma. And this is the only place when you get a melanoma report that you want to know. This is the only place that you can put down two types. And you need to. If there's a conventional melanoma, you need to report it with. If you get a report that says desmoplastic melanoma, you call the pathologist and say, is it pure or is it mixed? It makes a world of difference. Sentinel node biopsy for patients with cutaneous desmoplastic melanoma. This is from Memorial. 24 successful sentinel node biopsies. Uh, average thickness, 2.2 millimeters. These are in patients with desmoplastic melanoma. No positive sentinel node in any. Median follow-up, not tremendous, only 27 months. Five recurred, four systemically, and one locally. And no patient had failure in the regional node basin. So they concluded desmoplastic melanoma is a biologically distinct form of melanoma with a very low incidence of regional lymph node metastases. It hasn't come to full fruition yet, but people are really moving in the direction that if it's a pure desmoplastic, those patients may not in the near future be going to sentinel node biopsy. So again, what, about, what are you going to do with this? You have a melanoma here. This is a conventional melanoma. These epithelioid cells, there's no way that's desmoplastic. No way. But look down here. That's actually melanoma too, and that is desmoplastic. This is a mixed melanoma. So this, what I would, I would report both components. I would report the depth on both components. And this melanoma will, will behave the same as a conventional melanoma if it's mixed. So that you need to keep in mind. Another study, this is MB Anderson looking at um, pure desmoplastic melanomas compared to the mixed. The mixed desmoplastic plus conventional compared to the non-desmoplastic or the conventional. So you have the pure desmoplastic, the mixed, and the conventional. The pure desmoplastics and the conventionals were thinner and more likely ulcerated than the pure desmoplastics. But the sentinel lymph node positivity was similar among the mixed desmoplastic and the non-desmoplastic melanoma, or the conventional. But the pure desmoplastics were less likely to have a positive sentinel lymph node, only 2.2% compared to 15 and 17%. So it's significantly different. They concluded treatment of mixed desmoplastics should be the same as other melanomas, but sentinel node biopsy may not be warranted for pure melanomas. How are the melanoma lymph nodes evaluated in pathology? This is from our uh, this pathology at Mayo Clinic. This is one of our neuropathologists. This is Tammy Distead. She's um, uh, one of our PAs. Uh, this is Katerina Giannini. She's a very famous neuropathologist. And these are two of our residents. There's a lot of protocols to uh, evaluate sentinel nodes. Some suggest very extensive sampling in H&E, S100, H&B45, 50 millimeter intervals, for 20 levels or until you exhaust the block. Yeah, and is the pathologist going to do anything else for the next couple days? This will cost probably six dollars to $10,000 just for the immunostains for that. Um, it's, it's probably not going to end up being cost-effective to do that. The benefits of it will need to be considered in light of the extraordinary time and cost involved in something like that, and whether it's really going to matter in the long run to the patient, most importantly. 
Um, the Sydney Melanoma Unit looked into this. Of 957 of 1,100 uh, uh, sentinel nodes uh, that were negative, 26 of the 957 had regional node occur recurrence. 22 of the 26 had material to re that was able to go back and review. They went back. What went wrong? Did we miss them? And in seven cases, yeah, they did find melanoma. Two of the cases that they found it on the slides, it was mixed. But in five of the cases, they, they did find it in deeper levels. But they figured that, gosh, they only found it going through hunting with all of that of two uh, of the uh, seven of the 22. So they figured that because you they could only find it in seven of the 22, that there's some other mechanisms rather than the, just the failure of the histology or the histopathologist to find the melanoma. Perhaps it, the sentinel lymph node, it's not always clear on a patient. Oftentimes you think you get one sentinel lymph node. Have you ever, how many cases have you ever gotten back a report where you get one sentinel node? On occasion. Oftentimes it's many. So if you do that exhaustive sampling, you know, six, 10 grand just for the immunostains, and you have three, that's 30,000 bucks just for the immunostains for doing it. So you kind of see how this is, it, it does get ex very expensive and very exhausting to do. So they concluded that that very intense examination of the nodes is very difficult to justify from a cost-benefit uh, perspective and recommend two H&Es and two immunostains. Most sentinel nodes are evaluating is pretty, it's pretty upfront. Here we have a node, this is a lymphoid parenchyma, this is subcapsular sinus, and then here we have melanoma and we have melanoma in the parenchyma. For the most of the time, sentinel nodes are not a big problem. Uh, Immunohistic uh, chemical stains are helpful in detecting microscopic metastases in the nodes. Most commonly we use these markers, S100, HMB, and melan A. It's kind of important that you know about the markers because there's some differences in them. S100 is most sensitive, but it stains, it seems like everything. It's a filthy stain. Nodal dendritic cells, neural cells, and nodal nevi. But S100 is the only marker to reliably stain desmoplastic melanomas, but they rarely go to lymph nodes. But still, it is the most sensitive stain. So generally, that in addition to two H&Es, uh, you get an S100 and at least one additional marker, HMB45 or melanomart one This is in reality what you get. So if you wonder what the pathologists are doing, showing the cases around and dinking with it for a few days, this just to show you may be it. Here's the S100, here's the nodal nevus cells, the capsular nevic cells. It picks those up, those are benign. Picks up the nodal dendritic cells, and it picks up neural tissue. Here's a nerve twig out here. So you can tell if you figure out, if there are a few melanoma cells sprinkled through that, how could you tell? Well, you probably couldn't. So how about other markers, like melan A or MART1? And that's expressed by a similar number of melanomas as HMB45. They're quite similar. You might find some literature a few percent more, a few less. Reality, they're quite similar. Um, melan A is melanoma antigen, and MART1 is melanoma antigen recognized by T cells. It's the same gene or antigen. It just was identified at the same time independently by two different groups. That's why we have melan A and MART1. She so figured, well, you know, me, uh, the monoclonal antibody A103 is for melan A and the others for MART1. That's not true either. You think it is, but it's not. The companies can name them anything they want. So you have to actually look at what antibody that you do have. This is a nice stain uh, because it doesn't stain the dendritic cells or nerves. It's very clean like that, as is HMB45. So those, both of those stains, equally decent and helpful because they don't stain the extraneous stuff. Here, this is 
a nodal nevus, this capsular nevus, these cells here, this is with a red chromogen with the melanin A to pick them up in the cap, so we can all figure that out. That's a nodal nevus. But what about this? So extensive through the node. I mean, it's through all of this. This is actually going through all the sinuses and up, up uh, within the capsular septi. So you can see why, if you get back kind of a report, maybe they sent it around to have other people look of how extensive, and you think, how hard can it be? It's capsular nevus. It's because of this. This is another caveat on the immunostains. It might be helpful to just have an idea about it. It's a little bit of a trick that we can use. This is a capsular nodal nevus. And it's not just because it's in the capsule, because if you have melanoma cells floating out in a vascular space, you're going to count that as positive. Here it's positive for S100, as well as all these dendritic cells. We see the melanin is much more cleaner in the parenchymas, as is HMB45. But you notice the HMB45 doesn't stain those capsular nevic cells. Thank goodness for that. So that's a little bit helpful for us. So as people are dinking around, you might figure, where's my report back? They're sending it off. Maybe they don't happen to have this mark or that mark, and that's what they want. Here's another pitfall, and this is one that'll frustrate you the most, and it frustrates us the most, and it's the biggest problem that we have in the sentinel nodes. And this is a very nice study, very simple, done. Uh, they took patients with no history of melanoma, and they found individual MART1 and melanin A positive cells in the lymph node parenchyma. 5.1% for MART1, 2.4% for melanin A. You can also find with HMB45. So you figure, so what? It's a single cell, a couple, a few cells. What does it matter? This is what matters, and this is having to do with our new staging system. Isolated tumor cells in the sentinel node affect long-term prognosis of patients with melanoma. But you figure, but they can be in patients with even no history of melanoma to have isolated melanin positive cells only. And isolated immunopositive cells now count in our staging system. So this is a big deal and a big difference. So they looked at sentinel nodes with no uh, tumor in the nodes or only isolated tumor cells. 1,300 patients, of whom 214 had positive nodes, of which 57 were isolated tumor cells. 52 of the 57 cases, the patients underwent completion lymphadenectomy, and in six of those, or about 12%, had metastases in non-sentinel nodes. That's a similar rate for the patients who had more extensive disease. And they found the five and 10-year melanoma-specific survival higher for the negative nodes than for those with the isolated tumor cells. So unlike the last system where they thought, we'll just throw in the, the breast criteria, let's just use that for the nodes, we'll just do the same as breast because it's got to be the same thing. I think our oncologist about had a stroke when that came out. But this at least is cleaned up from that. But you see the problem. This is very difficult. So some other issues regarding lymph node, the sentinel nodes in the AJCC for the immunohistochemistry. Acceptable to classify node-positive metastasis based on immunohistochemical staining of melanoma-associated markers. You must use one melanoma-specific marker rather than S100. You have to see it on that, unless diagnostic cellular morphology is present. What do you think the pathology, pathology CAP protocol, the other protocols say? you have to have diagnostic cellular morphology. This is a really big change. And we're, we're just not 100% sure what to do with this yet. This is a very big change, unless. 
RT-PCR is still specifically excluded. Um, if it's positive, you have no idea if it's, if it's melanoma or if it's a nodal nevus. It's positive in either with the, the conventional markers that we have. If it's negative, it's a very good positive prognostic factor. So for the, th the size threshold, the isolated tumor cell problem, uh, they've concluded now in our new system there's no definitive evidence that defines a lower threshold of microscopically identifiable tumor burden that should not be used, that should not be used to define node-positive disease. There's no bottom threshold. If you see anything, it's positive. And, and this is a little bit hard for us to swallow because you see, what, one tumor cell and you call it positive? But that is what we've been doing. That's what the staging suggests. How about doing it by frozen section? We get calls from, uh, from outside folks saying that the patients want to come to Mayo Clinic because they have their sentinel nodes done by frozen section. Or that their surgeon heard that we do it by frozen section, so they want to do it, you know, the, uh, the clinicians insist. And I was at a, uh, uh, talking about this before, and after that then I got called up, well you do by frozen section, now our people want us to do by frozen section. That's not a good idea in reality. Frozen section, we have a real odd, unique practice, and it's just an old traditional thing that we do there. There is some benefit because you, we, um, we find about half of them at frozen section. Those patients don't have to undergo another surgery. So that's a benefit. We find the next half the next day. The problem, though, the problem, the literature is overwhelming. That frozen section is discouraged due to a concern for loss of tissue during the procedure. We've done, I monitor this practice to be certain that our levels stay there. But in no way would you go home and say to your, to your uh, pathologist or to your surgeons that you want them to be sure it's done by frozen. It's not a good idea. It isn't. I wouldn't suggest any other people do it. It's a historical, traditional thing. We're lucky it happens to work out, <clears throat> but we monitor it all the time. And if it, if it isn't working well, it'll go, off, it'll go off there too. So we're not suggesting that one bit. Um, one of the last things here to talk about is this, the macrometastasis or the micrometastasis. So what is this? What is it? Macro? Micro. It's big, it faces the whole node. Here's the definition. Micrometastasis, diagnosed after sentinel lymph node biopsy. Clinically, it's not detectable. But what do you do if a patient's morbidly obese? You could have a fairly decent sized node. So it's, you know, it's not perfect. Macrometastasis, clinically detectable lymph node confirmed pathologically, and this, or gross extranodal extension, that's in the staging book. It's not in the peer-reviewed staging uh, that was put out previously, but that showed up in the staging book, not what was peer-reviewed. So that's kind of interesting. With this gross extranodal, so grossly if you see the extranodal, our uh, radiation oncologists, and I suspect yours as well, if you have microscopic disease extranodally, they do want to know that too. It doesn't change the staging, so we're very careful in specifying, but that's important for them because then they may radiate uh, the field. Distant metastases, distant skin subcutis uh, metastasis are M1A, uh, M1B lung metastasis. Those are always left out separate. And then you notice this is very important. LDH, very important. Normal LDH, normal LDH. Uh, to have M1C, any other visceral site is M1C other than distant skin or subcutis or lung, except if you have elevated LDH. If you have elevated LDH and any distant metastasis, any, you're M1C. 
Now here's, we'll end with this, metastatic melanoma of unknown primary. So you have a patient, gets a lymph node metastasis, you're asked to see him to try to find the primary. You can't find the primary, you hunt every place. You can't find, you look in the eyes, you look in the mouth, you look in the mucosa, you look everywhere, you can't find it. Prognosis is similar to or more favorable than patients with the same staging characteristics from a known primary cutaneous melanoma. So if they show up with a lymph node met, it is, and no known primary, it is still considered regional disease, stage three. It's not considered stage four. It's still stage three. If they show up with localized skin or subcutaneous metastases, but you can't find any other sites of metastases after your staging workup, and you can't find a primary, again, that's presumed to be stage three and not four, and that's very important. All other metastases, such as visceral, are stage four. So to conclude, tumor thickness we know still is most powerful prognostic factor in the primary tumor. Mitotic activity is now in the seventh edition of the AJCC staging for T1 tumors. Clark level is only a tertiary feature. And again, this is new as well. Immunohistochemical only identification is accepted, but you must include a melanoma-specific marker unless diagnostic cellular morphology is present, no size threshold for node metastasis, no lower threshold, anything counts. Generally, the pathologist will get two H&Es and S100 and another immunostain or two. S100 we know is most sensitive, it's not specific, it stains a lot of other things. Nodal nevi, we find it helpful with our, our immunohistochemical markers because they're usually negative for HMB45, so that's something that if we struggle we may go to. And, and in patients with no history of melanoma, there is the pitfall of MART1 and melanin as well as HMB45 positivity even in those patients. And RT-PCR, if the patients ask for it, because of course it's, it's talked about on the internet a lot, it's done in the research setting. It's not done at this time to, for adjuvant therapy or general treatment. So we'll end there. there unless there's, we have time for any questions. Thank you for the very helpful talk. Um, I had a question about, uh, what about melanoma invading the, you know, instead of the lymphatic system, but the capillaries and metastasizing with that, with bypassing the lymph nodes? Is there, a, do you know the percentage of melanomas that do that, or do they, or? Um, I don't think that people have really looked into, if they're in the capillaries, that'd be terrible hard to actually see. It's it, the angiolymphatic spaces. Well, the newer thing that's come out that Ray Barnhill came out with was rather than going through the angiolymphatic spaces, usually it's a little bit bigger, but again with David's El, David Elder's latest study, we know that there's a lot more vascular invasion than we pick up, a lot right. more, but it's not perfectly predictive of node metastasis. But back to Ray Barnhill's, what he came out with recent was that having, instead of the cells, we think they're going through the vessel. They're floating through the blood or through the lymphatic, right? That's right. what we think about. They're floating through there. But he actually has done some nice studies to show them going along that, the outside of the vessels, around the vessels, extending out that way. It is the most bizarre thing to think about, but he actually he has a fair amount of data to, to support that. So that's an unusual way for them to spread. And how do you, you can't detect that, can you? You can't, there's no way of detecting that type of spreading. I mean, if the lymph node was negative, and then, you know, 10 years later, they come back with metastatic melanoma. It could have 
bypass. Yeah, it could do something like that. It could have just been in the time course. It could have been earlier on. Say they were going for an axillary node, and um, you know it was lower in the arm for a hand melanoma. It, it could be in a failure of the, the surgical procedure. It could be a failure of the lymphocentigraphy. It could be a failure of pathology. It could be that the patient has a very unique uh, uh, immune system. There's a variety of different things it could be. Um, I was talking to Alistair Cochran last week, and he was saying that what they were trying to do is get carbon particles to add in with the lymphocentigraphy when they put it in, because a lot of times the nodes, they'll not necessarily be that terribly blue when you get them, so a lot of that's already left, and the radioisotope as well, to, to have something else to use to mark, because we know you get a tattoo, you get those nodes out, they're full of tattoo pigment, right? So with that, to inject carbon particles with it, and it's actually kind of a nice idea. The problem is apparently it's as simple as it's very difficult to find high enough grade carbon particles to do. To is a PET scan ever accurate? Um, for bigger, be? but actually for radiographically, no. Okay. Any of the radiologic studies are not very good. Some suggest doing ultrasound and needle-guided mm -hmm. biopsies, and that's just not very, it's not very good at all. I okay. mean, it's better than in nothing to do. Right. It's better than nothing. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? All right, thanks.